If you want to open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. There's only 10 chapters in Ezra, and we're going to do both 9 and 10 tonight. They go together very much, very connected. I've entitled this message, Marriage Problems. If you're familiar with the text, you know why I call it that, because it's about some marriage problems. Um, you might say, well, why are you telling us this? We know this. Well, the answer to that is because it's in the Bible. The other answer to that is that it comes up in the Bible, this particular chapter, or this particular topic of marriage problems comes up over and over and over again. Some say as much as three-quarters of the books of the Bible mention it either by teaching directly or by inference. And yet it is, for my bet, it is one of the most disobeyed commandments of God in the Bible. Over and over again. It's in the Bible, over and over again. It's not paid attention to. I think the reason for it, and you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will in a moment. I think the reason for it is that sexual attraction is stronger than our love for God a lot. And it's very difficult to restrain ourselves, especially once the button, the on button has been pushed. Ezra returned to Jerusalem with not a very large number of people, a couple of thousand people. Chapter 8 ended with their journey to Jerusalem and with a big worship service taking place where sacrifices were offered to the Lord. And then chapter 9 picks up, when these things were done, the trip, the travel, the worship service, when these things were done, the leaders came to me, this is Ezra speaking, saying, the people of Israel and, and the priests and the Levites. Now I want you to notice that. This comes up a few times, that this wasn't just the people. It was the leaders as well. Have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, the Gentiles, the, the pagans, the non-believers, if you will. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, Ammonites the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they, our people, he's talking about, for they have taken some of their daughters, the foreigners' daughters, as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed, particularly the holy seed of the tribe of, of Judah, not just, the tri not just Israel, but the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah was to come, is mixed with people peoples, people groups of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So the leaders were among, not just among the guilty, they were among the most guilty. In verse 3, so when I, Ezra, heard this thing, I tore my garments. Now again, we don't do this kind of thing to demonstrate grief, but I think most of us are familiar enough with the Old Testament to know that this was a Middle Eastern Jewish in particular way of 
showing grief and remorse, tore my garment, pulled out some of the hair on my head and beard, and sat down astonished. This was a man of God's word, a man of God's law. He was a scribe, and he was astonished at the people's blatant choice of lifestyle sin. We need to always make a differentiation between, between the kind of sin that just happens when you stub your toe and something comes out of your mouth that isn't praise the Lord and a lifestyle sin that says, I'm going to live this way. And marriage is, if we understand it at all, is supposed to be a one-way street. So it's not just a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. He was astonished. Why aren't we? Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, I, noted, I love the fact that he points out the people who cared about what God's word said, assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening service. So other people who, who saw Ezra mourning and, and, and grieving over this sin came and joined around him. And it went on in astonishment for the rest of the day and on into the evening. Why was this such a big deal? I mean, everybody should be able to love whoever they want. Throughout the scriptures, believers have been forbidden to marry non-believers. Clear back in Genesis 24, Abraham made his servant swear an oath that he not allow did he not get a, a son for Abraham's, a wife, excuse me, for Abraham's son Isaac of the daughters of the Canaanites? You must not let my son do this. Swear to me you won't let this happen. Now I want to just point out, this is not a racial issue. Race, skin color, ethnicity, let me just tell you what that means to God. Nothing. At all. This is not a racial or an ethnic or a skin color issue. This is a spiritual matter. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 32 and 33, God warned the people that when they go into the promised land, he says, you shall make no covenant with them, no agreement, no covenant with them. With who? With the people of Canaan, nor with their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. God was not trying to keep them, not to keep something good from them, but to protect them from something bad. If you do this, if you get involved with people who are not believers in contractual, covenantal ways, they will pull you back. Don't get into any covenants or contracts with these people. I would suggest to you that there is no more important covenant or contract in human relationships, barring none, than marriage. Marriage can be the most wonderful thing in your life and it can be the worst thing in your life, and it all depends on whether you choose wisely. God not only forbids his people into enter such contracts, enter into such contracts, particularly marriage with non-believers, he explains why 
The non-believer will cause the believer to fall into sin. God continues in Exodus 34, 13 through 16, you shall destroy their altars, meaning get rid of everything having to do with pagan religion, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. If you cozy up to them, the next thing you know, oh, we're all friends here, we're all, it's okay, what the heck, it doesn't matter. You make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlots with their gods and end up making your sons play the harlots with their gods. It happens. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, God warned that when they entered the promised land, they were to, quote, utterly destroy, to, quote, make no covenants with them, speaking of the, the godless and the pagans, nor show mercy to them. Why? Nor shall you make marriages with them, nor shall you give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. And then he tells us why. For or because they will turn your sons away from following me to observe, to serve other gods. This is the word of God. It's clear. Now, all of this comes back to a very important principle. The important principle is, you might want to memorize this. You cannot throw a cup of sparklets water into a mud puddle and expect the mud puddle to become clean. It's just a parable in the dirt that teaches a very important spiritual principle. And this is the principle is that mud swallows the sparklets. The scriptural principle is simply this that which is unholy makes that which is holy unholy. Conversely, it doesn't work the other way around. What is holy does not make what is unholy holy. But wait, there is one exception. Jesus Christ is so holy, holier than we can even comprehend. He is so holy that even though a Jew was forbidden to touch someone who was unclean, use an example of someone with leprosy. Because if the clean touches the unclean, the clean isn't made whole, but the unclean is defiled, and yet Jesus scandalously in the eyes of the people, touched lepers and healed them. And he was never defiled by it. He's the only one who can do that. He sanctifies what is unholy. Praise God. This principle is at the root of God's prohibition of believers marrying non-believers. God is not arbitrary in this. It's not just, well, let's make up a new law about marriage. He is not withholding what is good. He is protecting us from what will destroy us. And he tells us it will. As Christians, we have a hard enough time being holy. How well are we going to do if we become one flesh with someone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's not merely, oh, I believe in God and I have a Bible. Theology matters. It's not to say that other people who believe differently are not Christians. But you don't think it matters? How many times have pastors sat down with couples who have completely different ideas about life because of their, even among Christians, because of their backgrounds and what they believe theologically? 
Why was this such a big deal to Ezra? Ezra learned that his countrymen were intermarrying with the heathen. He tore his clothing, he pulled out his hair and his beard, and he sat down and he was astonished. And we say, let's have a party. In verse 5 through 15, and I'm just going to read through this whole section Ezra cries out to the Lord, confessing the people's sin, including himself by saying, we have done this, even though he didn't personally do it, because he recognized the concept of corporate guilt. We as a people, it's not just me, it's, it's my family, it's my church family, and it's even my nation. Verse 5, at the evening service, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread my hands to the Lord my God. Notice the brokenness over his sin here. And he says, he said, oh my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And then he rehearses the history of God and why they were in Babylon. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers, the patriarchs, to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands. He's talking about why they were in exile in Babylon. We've been delivered into the hands of the king of the lands the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And then he reminds God of God's grace in restoring them in verse 8. Now, a little while, now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. He knows that they've been brought back to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg. I like that word. It's like God's giving them a toehold. He's giving them one thing. You know, like when you go on a climbing wall and you've got one little thing to grip, he's giving us a peg. He's giving us just a chance to turn this mess around and to escape and to give us a peg in his holy land. For what? That our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure, a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Remember, Cyrus was shown the scriptures and he said, go back, build the temple, worship your God and I'll even fund it. To revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem, not yet built at this point. In verse 10, and now, meaning, and after all that grace, and now, in light of all of this grace, O our God, what shall we say after this mess that we're in? We have forsaken not your suggestions, not customary wisdom, your commands. We have forsaken your commands, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, Quote, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land with their abominations which they have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons. He's quoting the law. 
and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, that's how Ezra viewed this, the seriousness of this problem of interfaith, if you will, marriage. Since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. You brought us back and this is how we thank you, he says. Should we again? We were taken out of the land because of our sin. We were brought back because of your grace. And now that we're back, should we again break your commands? And what's the first command he points out? Join in marriage with people committing these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt though no one can stand before you because of this. The problem's been identified. He's crying out to God, have mercy on us. What do we do? Chapter 10. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. His confession moved others to say, wow, we really are guilty, aren't we? Ezra's weeping, mourning. Others are gathering around him. In verse 2, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. Notice this, and the children. according to the advice of my master. Who is that? By the way, if your Bible it might say the word Lord, it's not talking about the Lord. It's talking about someone who was Shechaniah's better, his master, maybe his employer, or someone that he listened to. And those who tremble at the command of our God, let it be done according to the law. And I'm going to tip my hand a little bit. There is no law that says to do what Shechaniah told them to do. So I just wrote in my notes, what law would that be? Verse 4, arise, for this matter is your responsibility. He's telling Ezra, now it's up to you. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. I want you to note in verse 1 that Ezra's brokenness, confession, and repentant heart was contagious. Others joined him. This is why revivals frequently break out in public prayer meetings that are marked by confession of sin. In verses 2 through 4, I'm going to tell you something right here that I don't normally do. 
I'm going to break with the six commentaries that I looked at on this. And I'm going to give you six reasons why I'm going to tell you that I think that Shechaniah's advice was wrong and following it was wrong. First of all, we don't know who Shechaniah or his master was. We do not know. No commentators, they say, well, he's the son of this guy and the son of that guy, but we don't know them either. He's just some guy. That doesn't mean that God can't speak through him, but it's like he's not a person who's in a position of authority. That's number one. Number two, his advice, though it did follow prayer, does not seem to be what God would have ordered. Number three, remember, we do not base doctrine on narratives. Narratives tell us what happened, but that doesn't mean that what happened was right. This narrative accurately tells us what Shechaniah advised Ezra to do and that Ezra followed the advice and they did it. But I'm here to tell you, I think what they did was wrong. Those who say it was right do a lot of gymnastics with the scriptures in order to bring in inferences that are not in the scriptures. Say, well, we just know that this and we do that. Number four, don't miss that the narrative never says God either ordered or affirmed the proposed action. Number five, how could it be right to divorce the wives and abandon the children? I sure can't figure out how that would make anything right. And number six, the reason most people that who say that this was right, the reason most say this was the right thing to do is that it demonstrates how serious the sin was. I fully agree with how serious the sin was. However, should we take this same advice and abort babies because they were conceived in sin? Heavens no. What did Ezra do and what did he not do? Well, he never asked the Lord if Shechaniah's advice was correct. There's not a word in here of saying, let's pray about this. They prayed about their sin. They prayed about confession. Some guy comes along and says, this is what we need to do. And they did it. And there's no mention of God in this. There's no mention of seeking the Lord in this. Verse 5 continues, Then Ezra arose on the word of Shechaniah, and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word, to this word. Not God's word, but according to this instruction. So they, the people, swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoahan, the son of Eliashib, and when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather in Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and the elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those in the captivity. By the way, footnote, you can't justify even that action from the law. There's nothing in the law that says people don't obey the civil authorities. You can take their property. Verse 9, so the men of Judah and Benjamin, because Benjamin had been absorbed by Judah, gathered at Jerusalem within three days. Everybody hastened to get there. It was the ninth month on the twelfth 
or the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and taken pagan wives according to the, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord of your fathers and do his will. That was right and good. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. I maintain that that was not good. Verse 12, then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, you have said we must do. No mention of God. Did God say anything on this? But there are many people, verse 13, it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is the work of one, or nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this manner. They had divorce court that couldn't be done in three days. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times. In other words, make appointments, take a number, go to the DMV together with the elders and the judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And then he remembers in Meshulam and Shabbethai, the Levite, gave them support. So there was four people who said, I don't know about this. What if those who opposed this action were right? And right for the right reasons. Verse 16, then Ezra, excuse me, then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Note in the next couple of verses that some of the priests had also married pagan women. It's already been established, but here in verse 18. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Joshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, Mesiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Verses 22 through 44 list the names from among them, the names of many from among them who had committed this great sin by marrying outside the faith. And I just would say to that, the fact that a lot of people were guilty is proof that because everybody does something, that doesn't make it right. It only proves that everybody can be wrong. That's the end of the chapter, and that's the end of the book. This issue is going to come up again in Nehemiah chapter 13, which takes place 25 years later. This didn't help. 
25 years later, when Nehemiah comes, he finds the same problem. Actually, he comes sooner than 25 years. They get the wall built, and then he has to leave to go back to Persia on some government business. And then when he comes back, it's drawn to his attention that they're all marrying. Well, there's three things that they did. One of the three sins of the people in Nehemiah chapter 13 is marrying non-believers. We'll talk more about it when we get to Nehemiah 13. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this really sobering two chapters that ends the book of Ezra, which of course we know the book of Ezra doesn't really end there because Nehemiah originally was a part of Ezra. But what we have in our Bibles is Ezra. It ends, wow. What are you going to do about that? But we thank you that in Nehemiah we're going to learn some other things that are very encouraging about the people coming to know the Word of God. And we pray that we would increase in our knowledge of God and in our discernment because of our knowledge of God that we would discern right and wrong and what to do in difficult situations. Life's filled with difficult situations. But none of them are too difficult for you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.